This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Biden administration has done well in building momentum behind its zero trust initiatives. But a focus on short-term goals to the exclusion of long-term planning runs the risk of undershooting a sustained impact. That's the warning in a new report from the National Security Telecommunications Advisory Council, or NISTAC, on the state of zero trust adoption in the federal government. Federal News Network's David Thornton has more. And David, briefly, what was the motivation behind this report? Yeah, the executive office of the president asked NISTAC to begin looking into this back in May 2021. So NISTAC stood up its Zero Trust and Identity Management Subcommittee and began this study not long before the first draft of the federal Zero Trust strategy came out. They've been studying this throughout the recent development and implementation of Zero Trust across the federal government. All right. And what did they find out? Well, first off, they're all for the recent movement on Zero Trust. Here's what Mark McLaughlin, co-chair of the NISTAC Zero Trust and Identity Management Subcommittee, said during the NISTAC conference call on the report. One of our report's foundational messages is that the U.S. government should be applauded for its strategic emphasis on Zero Trust. We believe the sustained commitment to its principles can be transformative for cybersecurity. And the importance of Zero Trust being mentioned in high-level documents, including the presidential executive order, cannot be overstated in terms of its impact and awareness and adoption of zero trust within boardrooms and information security teams across the nation. Our report similarly concludes that the just-released federal zero trust strategy is well-constructed and well-grounded in many industry best practices. That was Mark McLaughlin, co-chair of the NISTAC Zero Trust and Identity Management Subcommittee. Now, that said, it's obviously not perfect. The report points out that the guidance that's been released so far only extends to the next two and a half years. That's a relatively short-term focus. And that short-term focus has been appropriate thus far, according to the report, because they've been focused on building momentum. But NISTEC said the administration needs to follow up with more long-term guidance as well, and soon. Here's McLaughlin again, outlining the need for that follow-up guidance. The U.S. government risks zero trust becoming an incomplete short-term experiment rather than the foundation of an enduring, coherent, and transformative federal government strategy measured for decades. That is where the NSTAC focuses recommendations, policy actions that can help institutionalize zero trust over the long term beyond the two-and-a-half-year focus of the federal zero trust strategy. In In the report, we argue that to accomplish this, zero trust principles must be fully integrated into existing and new federal government structures, policies, and programs, and not be viewed as a new standalone initiative. This requires significant leadership prioritization, funding, and the establishment of new government governance and accountability mechanisms. That was Mark McLaughlin, co-chair of the NISTAC Zero Trust and Identity Management Subcommittee. And we're speaking with Federal News Network's David Thornton. So tell us some more about the recommendations. Well, some of the biggest ones specifically applied to the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. For example, the report calls on CISA to stand up a civilian Zero Trust program office. This office would host implementation guidance, reference architectures, capability catalogs, training modules, and generally serve as the Civilian Government Knowledge Management Center of Excellence for Zero Trust. It would be the civilian counterpart to and would coordinate and share best practices with the recently established Defense Department Zero Trust Program Office. The report also calls on CISA to develop a new shared service to assist agencies in discovering Internet-accessible assets through continuous and dynamic asset mapping. The authors found that keeping track of all these assets can be challenging for agencies. This is a, uh, an agency's don't-know-what-they-don't-know kind of situation. Sometimes it's due to human error and assets intended to be temporary aren't spun back down or backup assets aren't configured properly. Sometimes the issue is shadow IT. 
Basically, agencies don't always know how many assets they have that are actually on the internet. So NISTEC recommended CISA help provide the capability for external scans of agency infrastructure in order to complement internal records and help discover some of those previously unknown assets. Now, there are also some broader recommendations. For example, the report recommends the development of more mature standards around zero trust that can be applied to agencies, industry, and internationally over the long term. Developing, introducing, and adopting these standards is important for multiple reasons, according to the report. Here's Mark McLaughlin, co-chair of the NISTAC Zero Trust and Identity Management Subcommittee, discussing some of those reasons. Continued maturity of the widely accepted consensus-based zero trust standards will be critical and can serve as the basis of a variety of policy actions the U.S. government could leverage to incentivize zero trust adoption, as has been successfully modeled with the NIST cybersecurity framework. Another key policy recommendation is for the U.S. government to use federal security grant distributions to incentivize zero trust adoption. This opportunity is particularly significant in CISA's forthcoming implementation of the State and Local Cybersecurity Improvement Act. We recommend that CISA use this discretionary authority for states and localities by awarding for zero trust aligned projects, such as inventorying internet accessible assets or reducing accounts with privilege access. That was Mark McLaughlin, co-chair of the NISTAC Zero Trust and Identity Management Subcommittee. All right, so we have a policy, we have some guidance from OMB in detail, and now we have a report that has more recommendations. What's going to come next here, David? Well, NISTAC voted unanimously on Wednesday to approve this report and send it to the president. So the ball is now in the administration's court. We'll have to wait and see what they do with these recommendations. Federal News Network's David Thornton, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure, thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader 
that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect 
as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.